Second Corinthians chapter three, where we left off, verse six, Paul writes, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. But if the ministry of death written and engraved on stones was glorious so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away. How will the ministry of the spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. For if what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. Unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. But their minds were blinded for until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read A veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the spirit, the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are being transformed Into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the spirit of the Lord. In the third chapter, we have the unwritten grace of God mentioned in verse one through six. And then in verses seven through 18, we have the unveiled glory of God. Paul is going to contrast and compare the old and the new. The law of Moses and the gospel of grace. And Paul's intention is to prove the superiority of the new covenant over the old covenant. And so he writes that the old covenant was accompanied with a fading glory in verse 7 and verse 10. The new and unfading glory. The old was temporary, verse 11. Led to death, verse 9, function in part as a veil, concealing, hiding, restricting God's glory in verses 13 and 14, and then again in verse 15. The old covenant had the net result of preventing Christ's likeness in the lives of unsaved Jews and unsaved Gentiles, but producing boldness, it says in verse 12. So so Paul speaks with boldness and confidence in both his apostolic calling and the ministry that has been entrusted to him by the Lord. So the question becomes, how is it possible for Paul to be so bold 
to have so much assurance. It's sort of like when your friends and family and neighbors say, how can you be so sure that Jesus is the way? How can you be so sure that the gospel is true? How can you be so sure that heaven is real and hell is real and that what the Bible says is true? How can you be so sure of yourself? And Paul reminds the reader that his confidence is rooted and grounded in the revelation of God, in the work and the ability of Jesus Remember, he has no sufficiency in and of himself in verses four and five. So why does Paul contrast and compare the old covenant with the new covenant? Remember what we've already learned in Second Corinthians, chapter one, chapter two, and now chapter three. There were a group of Jewish people who had come from Jerusalem who had made their way to Corinth, Paul refers to them as Judaizers. And who were the Judaizers? Judaizers were men who sought to mix the law with the gospel of grace. Judaizers were people who said, it's great that Jesus has come. It's great that he died on the cross. It's great that he rose from the dead. But the truth is, unless you observe the law of Moses and embrace the law of Moses and the covenant of Moses and the promises, prohibitions and restrictions of Moses. Then you'll never be fully accepted by God. Now, you might think that that's crazy talk, that no one would really fall for that, right? You would be wrong. People continue to fall for it even to this day. You see, the world is roughly divided into two groups. Those who understand that you're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And then a group of people who believes that you're saved some other way. They might say that it's Jesus plus and and then fill in the blank. Go to my church. Read my book. Go to my website. Do this. Do that. Whatever it is. And so Paul writes, and we're going to spend a little time on verse 6, but don't panic. We will make it through. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6. Who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Now, the old covenant was the legal system delivered by God to Moses that's found in the book of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. Under the old covenant, blessing was conditioned. Upon knowing, reading, understanding, and obeying the law. A covenant, as you know, is a promise. It's an agreement. A covenant is when two parties agree to some specific thing in order for what seems to be a mutually agreed upon outcome. The old covenant, initiated by God... Conditioned on obedience could not produce righteousness. Was there even one person who was saved because they kept all of the law and they never broke it? Not a single person. Not even one. The new covenant is the gospel. 
In it, God covenants by his grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. And by the way, Paul is going to make a very big deal out of this as he continues the book of 2 Corinthians. But he's also going to expand on it in the book of Romans as he begins to outline and explain that you're justified by faith, that you're saved by grace. So the old covenant initiated by God conditioned on obedience The new covenant, it's the gospel. In God's covenant of grace through redemption in Jesus Christ, it is the gospel. The good news, of course, is God doesn't keep human beings in their sin, but is willing to save them in the person of Jesus Christ, in his substitutionary death, in his resurrection. And so in the new covenant, all things depend upon the Lord. In this sense, the new covenant is able to accomplish what the old covenant could never do. I want you to think this through. Could the old covenant cleanse your sin? No. Could the old covenant make you like Jesus? No. Could the old covenant assure you of a place in heaven? The answer is no. And so Paul is writing that the minister serves a new covenant. The old was written. The new is in the spirit. Look what it says in verse six. Not of the letter, but of the spirit. The word letter, by the way, is the Greek word grama or grama more probably pronounced. We get the word grammar from it. We get the word Grama, at first it meant the letters of the alphabet, and then it came to mean everything that was written. And so what is Paul saying? He, He isn't contrasting the law as if somehow it's bad, but rather he's saying if you take the outward, straightforward reading of the Old Testament law and desire to be obedient to the letter of the law, without desiring to to be obedient to the spirit of the passage, it harms you rather than helps you. Let me give you an example. When Jesus is speaking to the religious leaders, he condemns them because they, for instance, will tithe. They'll go to these enormous lengths if, if they have grains of, of, of grain. They'll, they'll literally put... One for God, nine for me. If they're planting a plant, they'll go one leaf for God, nine leaves for me. They'll go to extraordinary means to try to keep the letter of the law without desiring to be obedient to the spirit of the passage to show mercy or love. Let me give you yet another example. When the religious leaders believed deeply in their heart that Jesus was violating the Sabbath, they conspired together to murder him. Is breaking the Sabbath a bad thing? Yes. Is murder a bad thing? Now, again, in what religious context can you come to the conclusion that in order to preserve 
the Sabbath, you kill Jesus, which, of course, he, of course, did not break the Sabbath. So here's the idea. You'll remember. Paul is making a point. And the point I'm going to suggest to you is even different from that. In this particular context, the letter refers to the law of Moses. The spirit here refers to the gospel of grace of God or the work of the spirit in producing and proclaiming the gospel. That's the point that he's making. So the old kills, the new gives life. When Paul says that the letter kills, he's speaking of the ministry of the law. Here's the idea. Is the law bad? No. It's been given by God. Yes. The law condemns all who fail to keep its holy precepts. Romans 3.20. By the law is the knowledge of sin. Give you yet another example. You're walking along. You see a sign that says, don't step on the grass. So what do you want to do? You want to step on the grass. What is it about a sign that says caution, wet paint that makes you want to touch it to make sure that what the sign is saying is true? And so here is the point in Galatians chapter three, verse 10. It says, cursed is everyone that continues not in all things that are written in the book of the law to do them. In other words, Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 10, to the person who says, well, you know, the Ten Commandments, I kept most of them. Helpful or not helpful? Paul says if you're guilty of breaking one, you're guilty of breaking all. If you're driving along and you run the stop sign and the police officer pulls you over and he says... You ran the stop sign and you said, but I stopped at the thousand signs before this one. For a thousand signs, I stopped. I stopped at a hundred. I stopped at two hundred. I stopped at nine hundred. And you're going to punish me for the one sign that I ran? So does the officer reward you for being, for stopping 999 times? Or does he write you the ticket? For breaking the law. This is part of the point. Paul envisions the law like a necklace. Like pearls that are strung on a string. And once you break the necklace at any point, the whole necklace collapsed. The law could never be an instrument of life. The law's design was to reveal sin, to bring knowledge of sin and the conviction of sin. But the Spirit gives life. And so here the new covenant is called the Spirit in the sense that it means spiritual fulfillment of all the types and shadows alluded to in the Old Testament and the Old Covenant. What the law demanded but could never produce is now produced by the gospel. And so this ministry, J.M. Davis writes, this ministry of the letter that kills is illustration in the 3,000 killed at Sinai. You'll remember if you read the book of Exodus, (laughs) Moses goes up one time, comes down one time, goes up another time and another time, five times, six times, seven times. He comes down from Mount Sinai. 
He receives the law and he receives the tablets of the law. With the reception of the tablets, he meets the children of Israel, breaking all of the commandments on the tablets. 3,000 people are killed. Jesus rises from the dead. Peter preaches the message of the gospel on the day of Pentecost. And 3,000 people are saved. With the giving of the law, 3,000 immediately put to death. With the giving of the gospel, 3,000 people experiencing new life, life giving ministry. And so, again, look at verse 7. But if the ministry of death, written and engraved on stones, was glorious. Now, again, I want you to think for just a moment. Paul refers to the giving of the law and the covenant of Moses as the ministry of death. And when he says written and engraved on stones, what do you suppose he's making reference to? What was engraved on stones by the finger of God? The law, the Ten Commandments. But he refers to it as glorious. Why? Because it has its origin of God. And by the way, is the law evil? No. Is the law good? Yes. So that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away. Now, here's here's what Paul is doing. Paul is addressing the reality of the Judaizers who are coming and going, look at all the great stories that we have in the Old Testament. Like, you know, the story of Moses and the basket and how he is saved, how he redeems the children of Israel and how he leads them out in the book of Exodus. And he goes up on a mountain. And as he goes up on the mountain, there is the signs, the power, the presence of God and the power and the presence of God is manifested supernaturally so much so that his face starts to glow. True or false? All of that is true. But Paul takes the very argument that the Judaizers is making in order to to prove the superiority of the gospel. How? God threatened death to everyone who didn't keep the law. Look at Exodus chapter 19. And if you don't have a Bible, too bad. But Exodus chapter 19, verse 13. It says. Not a hand shall touch him. But he shall surely be stoned or shot with an arrow, whether man or beast, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds long, they shall come near to the mountain. The idea being, if you break the law. You die. If you come close to the mountain, you die. And there was glory with the giving of the law manifested in rumblings and power and the presence of God. Now, when Moses shows up. And he receives the law, his face begins to shine. And so in verse seven, when it says But if the ministry of death written and engraved on stones was glorious so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing 
away in the authorized version. It says which glory was to be done away. More properly, it should say which glory was passing away. Here's Paul's point. The glowing face of Moses was temporary. Now, again, you come down from the mountain, your face is glowing. It's like luminescent. So much so. That the people say. Look. Moses. Your face is glowing. And it's creeping us out. And Moses says in the book of Exodus. Come near and listen to what I have to say. Now, this this becomes very, very important. The word glory and the word glorious in chapter three and chapter four appears. I'm thinking 17 times. Do you know what the word glory and glorious means? I know that you probably have some idea that when you hear that word There's definitions. There's something that comes into your brain. Let me just give you a very abbreviated understanding of what that word means. If we were to take all of the sum and the substance of all of God's attributes and cram them into one word, it would be glory. When you think of God being omniscient, knowing everything, omnipotent, all-powerful, omnipresent, being everywhere at once, When you think of God being self-existent, when you think of God being holy, when you think of God being righteous, when you think of God being just, when you think of all of the attributes that make up the sum and the substance of the identity of God, that is the one word glory as it as it's usually meant in expression to God. And so. Paul calls the old covenant The ministry, not of life, but of death. And he's contrasting it with the new covenant, which is the ministry of life. But then in verse 8, he says, how will the ministry of the spirit not be more glorious? He's saying that it is glorious. Why? The old covenant, because it was accompanied with supernatural signs, wonders, power, the presence of God, Moses' glowing face. But here's what he's pointing out, that that glory would fade. There there would come a point where Moses would put a veil over his face. Now, here's here's the, the argument that Paul is making about the passage of Scripture in the book of Exodus. Why does Moses put the veil on his face? Some people draw the conclusion, well, because his face is glowing and it's creeping people out and they don't want to see a glowing face. Paul is arguing he's putting the veil on his face so that people wouldn't see the glory begin to fade and then disappear. In other words, here's how he's interpreting it. He's interpreting it to mean that from a from a biblical and a spiritual standpoint, it becomes a type and a picture of foreshadowing. Paul is saying of the fact that the old covenant like the glory on Moses' face would fade, so would the old covenant itself. 
The law was not without its glory, yet the ministry of the Spirit is even more glorious. Again, this is the ministry of the Holy Spirit? Well, in one sense, yes, because the gospel is in fact the ministry of the Holy Spirit. But again, I'm going to suggest to you in verse 8, how will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? He is talking about the ministry of the gospel empowered by the Holy Spirit, which brings about salvation, regeneration, the cleansing of the inward person, the transformation that takes place from the inside out. One fades on the outside, but one remains permanent on the inside. Paul is speaking of the Spirit of God working through the preaching of the gospel. Which saves people, which redeems people, which reconciles them to God. Now remember, the Holy Spirit empowered message. You see, it's, it's my belief, and it really is my belief. That no one comes to the Father unless they're drawn by the Holy Spirit. How is it possible that this story of the gospel, you hear it, where someone says, Jesus loves you and he died for your sins and he rose from the dead. What is it about one person who will hear that over and over again and they'll walk away, they'll neglect and they'll ignore the powerful message of the gospel. But what about the person who hears and understands who whose heart is knocked on by the Holy Spirit, who, who, who for whatever reason, they, they say, what if it's true? What if the Bible is true? And what if the message is true? And what if Jesus rose from the dead? And what if heaven is a real place? And when a person opens up their heart to the message of the gospel, and they pray that simple prayer, Jesus, come into my life. I'm sure, even though we have a tiny, tiny fraction of people here tonight, That if I went around the room and I asked you to stand up and I said, did you ever pray that prayer? Did you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior? And you stood up and you talked about what God did and how you responded to the call of God. Then you would begin to understand in part what Paul is saying. The ministry of the Spirit is more glorious. Why? Because the Holy Spirit empowered message of the gospel Changes people forever. And so that's the contrast and the comparison. Old law, glorious. Old covenant, not without signs, wonders. The power of God and the presence of God. But the new covenant, signs, wonders, power. One is temporary, the other one is permanent. And look what Paul writes. The old brought condemnation. The new brings righteousness. Look at verse 9. For if the ministry of condemnation had glory. Now remember, he's calling the old covenant the ministry of death. He's calling the old covenant the ministry of condemnation. Do you think that he has a high view of the old covenant? Not really. Why does he call it the ministry of condemnation? Again, in order to understand the meaning of why Paul is saying that, you have to understand what the word condemnation means. And what does it mean? Condemnation is the judicial pronouncement of guilt for crimes or sins. Condemnation is that point in the judicial process 
where a judge renders a verdict and says you are guilty and then sentences you with a sentence. Whether it's a day in jail because you were drunk or whether it's a lifetime in jail because you murdered someone. Condemnation is the judicial pronouncement of guilt. This is why Paul writes later in Romans chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What's he saying? There is no judicial pronouncement of guilt for those who are in Christ Jesus because you've been set free. The verdict has been rendered. You've been found not guilty. You've been you've been you've been sentenced to heaven. Okay, here's what you have to do. You have to spend eternity in 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 heaven with Jesus. Can you imagine you go in front of the judge and the judge says life everlasting in heaven with Jesus. That's my verdict. That's the point. So he says, for if the ministry of condemnation had glory, pause. Why does the ministry of condemnation have glory? Isn't one of God's attributes justice? Is it a glorious thing when a serial killer is found guilty and sentenced to execution? This is where you should say amen. This is my point. If a person wickedly, cruelly, malevolently commits crime after crime after crime after crime after crime and is found guilty of those crimes and then they're punished, is justice a good thing or a bad thing? It is a good thing. Except when it happens to you and me. Because when we stand before the judge and we're guilty, do we want justice or do we want mercy? But here's what he says. The ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. Why? What is the ministry of righteousness? It's the new covenant. It's the gospel of grace. Inspired by the Spirit. Again, Paul is referring to the law as the ministry of condemnation. In what sense? In the judicial pronouncement of of guilt. He's referring to the ministry of righteousness as the new covenant. In what sense? The gospel. Justice is glorious. But grace and mercy and forgiveness and reconciliation and redemption are more glorious. And so that's the point. The law pronounces guilt to all men. Since no man or woman perfectly keeps the law. But the ministry of righteousness pronounces innocence, freedom, justification, sanctification, glorification because of the work of Jesus Christ. Such glory is available to all. And so, in verse 10, for even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. Now, I know you read that and you go, I have no idea what you just said. 
So let me try and help you. When Paul writes, for even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect. I think what Paul is saying, at least in part, is that in some sense the law did in fact have real glory attached or connected to it. But when you compare it with the new covenant, it really doesn't have any glory at all. Let me give you an idea. Imagine you have a dirt clod. And imagine you have six ounces of gold. And someone says to you that this is the finest dirt in all of the world. And you're, you know, you're thankful for dirt and thank God for dirt. But do you go with the dirt clod or do you go with the gold? Yeah, you do. Because gold, even, even though it's lost value, it's still about $1,590 an ounce. You can get about two tons of dirt for $30. So one of the illustrations I would use is, again, when you look at the heavens and you see all of the stars, we live in a world and we live at a time that you can look out into this great universe. You can calculate the distance. You can measure the distance of the stars. You can even determine their mass and their composition. You can go out with all of your astronomy nerd friends And by the pitch of the light, they can tell you the composition of the stars, the distance of the stars, and all of that other stuff. But when the sun comes up, where do the stars go? They don't go anywhere. They stay where they always were. But the brightness of the sun makes it seem like the other stars no longer exist. And that's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying when the Son of God, the Son, Jesus, begins to shine in your life. Think about this for a moment. When you're saved, when you're redeemed, when Jesus comes into your heart and the Son of God begins to shine, shine, shine inside of your life, all of the laws in the Old Testament sort of disappear because you're motivated Not with just a keen desire to obey the law, but to love the Lord. And that's the point that he's making in verse 10. When all is said and done, here's what Paul is saying. When all is said and done, when we place the old covenant next to the new covenant, one outshines the other. And since the one is outshining the other, it's as if the other doesn't even exist. A.T. Robertson writes, the greater glory dims the less. In one point, at least, the old seems to have no glory at all because of the super abundant glory of the new covenant. Unquote. That's great. And so Paul writes in verse 11 that the old fades away. The new is permanent. Verse 11, for if what is passing away, that's the old covenant, was glorious What remains is much more glorious. Now, I want you to think. How was it glorious? Because it came from God. How was it glorious? Because it talked about justice. How was it glorious? It was accompanied by the power of God, the presence of God, the supernatural manifestation of God. How was it glorious? It made Moses 
face light up. But Moses' face fades away and he goes back to his normal face. But when Jesus comes into your life and when Jesus comes into your heart, does the glory ever go away? Does the grace ever go away? Does the super abundant manifestation of mercy and forgiveness ever go away? No, because it's permanent. So the authorized version says, For if that which passeth away was with glory, much more that which remaineth is in glory. The two key concepts are those prepositions, with and in. Glory appeared in the giving of the law. In other words, glory attended, accompanied the law. But in the new covenant, God, God's gospel of God's grace is glorious in and of itself. Now, let me just repeat that. What Paul is arguing is glory accompanied the old covenant like a companion, like a traveling companion attached itself to the old covenant. But what Paul is arguing is that the new covenant doesn't have glory following or accompanying, but that it is glorious in and of itself. How? 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 Which is better? To have a picture of Jesus in your wallet. Or to walk with Jesus. It's to walk with him. If you have a picture of him. Well that's kind of you know, cool. It's cool that you have a picture of Jesus in your wallet. But it's way more glorious. To walk with him. So once again the temporal is contrasted with the eternal. And what is it that's passing away? The old covenant for if that which passes away was with glory. Do you understand what Paul is actually saying? He's saying that the old covenant, the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments, the ministration of death written and engraved on stones. Verse seven is going away. Some suggest that the ceremonial law was done away with, but I'm going to suggest to you that all of the law was done away with all of it. You mean even the Ten Commandments? Yeah. Well, then how are we to think about the Ten Commandments? We should look at what Jesus said about all of the commandments and ask what Jesus said and then do what Jesus said. By the way, do you realize in the New Testament, Jesus repeats nine of the Ten Commandments? Which one is the one that he leaves out? Does anyone know? That's exactly right. The one commandment that he leaves out is the Sabbath keeping. And it's the one commandment that he's accused of breaking. And so, what do we say to our friends who say it's really great that you love Jesus and that you receive Jesus and that you accept Jesus? But if you really want God's favor and if you really want to be accepted by God, if you really want to make God happy, you need to keep the law. What's the right answer? 
The right answer is you're saved by grace. You're kept by grace. And that Jesus, that God is completely 100% satisfied with Jesus. That you're in Christ. By the way, if you are in Christ, can you be made more perfect than in Christ? The answer is no. You cannot be made more perfect than than in Christ. In the book of Colossians... It has this incredible statement that's made. It says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And it says, for by him all things were created that are in heaven and earth. And it says, he's before all things, that in him all things consist. It says, for it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell And then Paul writes in chapter 1 of Colossians, chapter 22, in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. I know what you're thinking. I don't feel holy. I don't feel blameless. I don't feel above reproach. Sometimes I feel downright unholy and full of blame. And filled with reproach. So how is it possible that God can see you holy, blameless, and without reproach? Because God can see Jesus. He sees Jesus and is satisfied with Jesus. So in verse 12, the old spoke with veiled meanings. The new speaks with plain meaning. And so again, in verse 12, it says, therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. Now, I want you to think about this revolutionary statement that Paul is making. Therefore, since we have such hope, what hope is that? That you are complete in Jesus, that the new covenant is is permanent, glorious. The, the hope, what is the hope that Paul is making reference to? The hope is the glory of the gospel that will never fade. It will never become dim. I've got my little list. New covenant, the law of righteousness, the law of the spirit, the law of faith, the law of liberty, the law of life sets us free. It is reality in force, makes us perfect, more glorious, saves to the uttermost. Hebrew 725 one sacrifice for sins. Hebrew 1012. We have one eternal priest. God forgets our sins. We have an eternal atonement. We have a sinless priest. We have an everlasting high priest. We have a heavenly tabernacle. It is law of grace and faith. It redeems us. It pleases God. There is no circumcision. It's made eternal. It is perfect and profitable. And that's just a few of the things. So he says, The glory of the gospel will never fade. Here's what he's saying. Therefore, we have such hope. We use great boldness of speech. The word in the Greek language for boldness of speech means. I'm trying to think of an analogy. If you were ever in the military, have you ever heard someone say. Sir, permission to speak freely. That's what that word means. It means I'm going to say what I mean and I'm going to mean what I say 
when he says we use great boldness of speech, it's the idea of speaking boldly, freely, without fear of consequence. It is the idea, I'm going to say something. And to be honest with you, I don't care if it hurts your feelings and I don't care if it makes you upset and I don't even care if it makes you uncomfortable. This is what Paul is saying. Therefore, since we have such great hope, we use great boldness of speech. Here's what he's saying. I have nothing to hide. I don't have to veil anything in ambiguity. I can speak with clarity. The reason we don't have to use a veil. People love secrets. They love religious secrets. They love ancient religions that promise greater and greater insight. In the ancient world, it was sort of like the more money you it was sort of like Scientology, where if you subscribe to Scientology and you give them like if you if you give us one hundred dollars, we'll give you this information. And if you give us a thousand dollars, we'll give you a lot more information. And if you if you give us ten thousand dollars, we're only going to we're going to tell you information that we would only reserve for like Tom Cruise and and celebrity insights, because the more money you get, give us the more insight we'll give you so that you will understand the secrets, the mysteries, the rituals, the secret teachings Are there religions like that? Are there religions that say, if you do this and you do this and you do this, we'll give you greater and greater information and more and more secrets? Paul is saying, look, we don't have anything to hide. The gospel is straightforward. You're a sinner in need of a savior except Christ. So he says in verse 13, unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. Why? Exodus 34:29 through 35 Moses puts a veil on his face so you don't see the glory fade away It's sort of like when you have a really crummy car and you take it to Earl Scheib and you put a really lousy paint job on it to hide all of the rust you put the crummy paint on To sell your crummy car so that people won't realize just what a crummy car it is. Paul says, we're not hiding anything. We're not hiding the rust. We're not hiding anything. Everything is straightforward. The people of Israel were afraid to come near Moses. Exodus 34, 33. And when, not till, Moses had done speaking with him, he put a veil on his face. Think about it. When Moses finished speaking, that's when he put the veil on so that they wouldn't see the glory fade. Here's what Paul is introducing you to. Moses had a special privilege before God. By the way, could Moses say things, do things, and go places that no other Israelite could go? In other words, when Moses is on top of the mountain, where's everybody else? At the bottom of the mountain or in the camp? When God says, Moses, you come forward, but if anybody else touches this mountain, I'm going to kill you. Dead. D-E-A-D. Dead. Remember when at the, at the meeting of the tabernacle, when you would go into the Holy of Holies? If you go into the Holy of Holies, what happens? You die. And so here's, here's what Paul is suggesting. 
that the person who knows and loves Jesus has all of the privileges that Moses had. You can go into God's presence. You can pray to him. Because the glory on Moses' face was a fading glory, a temporary glory. The law was temporary, transient. F.W. Grant says the glory of the face of Moses must give way to the glory of another face, unquote. And here is part of the point that you're about to see. The result is that the minister of the new covenant doesn't hide his face because the glory of the gospel never grows dim. Jesus inside of you shines brightly. Verse 14, but their blind, their minds were blinded for until this day, the same veil remains up unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. Paul, a rabbi and a Jew, argues that the children of Israel missed the true meaning and the significance of the veil. And then he switches his metaphor and hyperbole and he speaks of a veil that is dropped over the surface of the soul of the Jewish people who have rejected Christ. Today on the radio program, a little girl called me and asked me, why don't people love Jesus? Why do people reject Jesus? How come everybody doesn't repent of their sin and turn to Jesus? What, what would cause people? What are people thinking? She's, she was nine years old. And I asked her, do you know what the word pride means? And she told me yes. And I said to her that there are people who believe that they don't need God and that they don't need Jesus. They really believe that they can live their life without God and without Christ and without forgiveness. And Paul is basically saying that there were Jews who were clinging to the idea that true salvation came in knowing and understanding and observing the law. But does the law provide salvation? The answer is no. Now remember what Paul is doing. He's telling these things to the Corinthians because the Judaizers had come and said, if you really, really want to have an outstanding religious experience, then maybe you should think about embracing Judaism. And Paul says, no, no, and oh, their minds were blinded. Look what it says. For until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament. That's the law of Moses, because the veil is taken away in Christ. Here's what he's saying. The moment that a person receives Jesus Christ as their Lord and, and their Savior, this blanket of darkness gets lifted from the surface of the soul. And you begin to see clearly that Jesus Christ is the satisfying solution to the problem of sin. And so... Paul changes the image. And then in verse 16, it says, Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. When one, nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, who? The Jews. The Judaizers. I think it broadly means everyone. But in this particular instance, it means the Jew. The veil is taken away. 
Paul will, of course, speak of a future restoration of Israel in Romans chapter 9, chapter 10, chapter 11. And then the new covenant brings liberty, verses 17 and 18. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. When verse 17 says, now the Lord is the Spirit, what does that mean? I think at minimum means the Holy Spirit is Lord. Question, is the Father the Lord? Is Jesus the Lord? Is the Holy Spirit the Lord? But yet Paul writes that there's only one Lord. So are there three Lords or are there one Lord? There's one Lord. There's one Lord who is Declared Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But again, I'm going to suggest to you that here the Spirit is used in two ways. It's used in the way of the Holy Spirit, like in verse 6. It's also used of the Holy Spirit in the new covenant. Do you remember what I said to you earlier when I said the Spirit is the covenant? Because the gospel is, is empowered by the Holy Spirit. By the way, if the gospel isn't empowered by the Holy Spirit, is it effective? It really isn't. This is why I think so many people can go, Jesus loves you, he died on the cross for your sins, and he rose from the dead. And people yawn, and some people cry, and some people scream. And then Paul says, But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. Now, again, understand the image that Paul is using. Remember, he's talking about the Judaizers. He's already talked about Moses and his veiled face. But he says, we with unveiled face. Why is his face unveiled? Because he has the absolute confidence that the glory of the gospel will never fade. Unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as the spirit of the Lord. Why is his face unveiled? Because he says we are looking into the reflection of the new covenant as we see the face of Jesus. And as we see the face of Jesus, we are being transformed. The word is metamorpho. Do you know what that word means? Metamorpho is the word that is used to describe a caterpillar that becomes a butterfly. It means a transformation of such a fundamental nature that what you used to see is absolutely changed and absolutely different. In the Old Testament, Moses wasn't allowed to see The glory of the Lord. But in the new covenant, we get to look full in his wonderful face, just like the song says. We sing it. That we will look full into his wonderful face and the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. So how do we keep our faces unveiled? I'm going to suggest to you when we confess our sin and forsake our sin. What is the mirror of God in this particular instance in 2 Corinthians chapter 3? What is the mirror of God? It's the Bible. 
It's the gospel. Here, the mirror of God is when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when you read the stories of Jesus, when you're reading the stories of Jesus, you're seeing Jesus, you're seeing His life, you're seeing His love, you're seeing His ministry, you're seeing His character. We look in the Bible, we see Jesus revealed in His splendor. We don't see Him face to face. We see, as it were, a reflection of Jesus given to us in the Bible. And that's why Paul, but we will see him face to face. There will come a time when you will see him and you will look at him face to face. You know the illustration that's given in the New Testament? It's the book of Stephen. Do you remember when Stephen was talking about the gospel and the history of the Jews and how the Jews need to have a right relationship with God in Christ? It says the religious leaders looked at Stephen in the book of Acts and it says his face glowed like an angel. Because the more that Stephen talked about Jesus, he began to look like Jesus. The same is true of you. Do you realize the more you love him and the more you talk about him, the more you see him, the more you look at him and you see his reflection in the mirror of the word of God. Oddly enough, you start to look like him. I'm not talking about long hair and a beard and you look like you come from the Middle East. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the reflection of his character as the fruit of the Spirit is manifest in your life. William MacDonald writes, Thus Paul brings to a close his rather mystical but deeply spiritual exposition of the new covenant and how it compares with the old, unquote, but all we did was scratch the surface. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, when we think about the old and we think about the new, it seems crazy to me that so many people want the old and they neglect or they forsake the new. But Heavenly Father, we know that it isn't in the keeping of the law That ingratiates ourselves to you. But rather. It is in embracing Jesus. And confessing the reality that our sin is so great. And so wicked. And so profound. That there is no satisfying solution to the problem of our sin. Other than the satisfying sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And so we never tire of saying it. We never tire of singing it. We never get tired of proclaiming it. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And so, Lord, again, we thank you. We praise you. We glorify you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, see, we did it.